Mark Sweeten, Mark Sweeten, and uh, as you know, it's a good shepherd and it's renowned. John 10, uh, 1 to 30. So I trust the Lord will undertake for our brother and help him in the, the passage. We'll read the passage. John's Gospel, chapter 10, and commencing at verse number 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine, as the Father knoweth me. Even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath the devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication. And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him. And said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, 
and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And we trust that God will bless to us the reading of his precious word. This is a a very beautiful and a very precious portion of the word of God. And as our brother Elwood was mentioning in prayer, it's it's a passage that the Sunday school teacher will, will very often go to. And we love to take up these, these pictures, we love to take up the imagery of the chapter and, and to use it as we speak to the boys and girls. But the passage has that quality that's, that's so much a, a feature of John's Gospel in that it can seem so simple. And it seems so suitable and so appropriate for a Sunday school. And yet as we come to look in detail at the passage, we discover that, that the still waters do run deep. And in the verses that are before us for our Bible reading this afternoon, there's a tremendous wealth of truth. And I trust that God will give us help to understand it and to grasp it. Now we have a long passage before us and what is perhaps more dangerous still in terms of a Bible reading, it's it's a passage that has the the verses that are, are perhaps a little more difficult towards the end. And I'll be very disappointed if we if we don't give adequate coverage, it would be easy to spend much of the time on the, on the first six verses of the chapter. And we will need to understand and to grasp those verses. But I trust that we'll be able to end of the passage. Uh, I'll do my bit in keeping my opening as short as I can. And I know that the brethren will help us to, to move along and to move down through the sections of the passage. Just before coming to the pas- passage, as I've been thinking of these four passages that we're to look for over the weekend... I've been enjoying again a thought that that has often appealed to me about the way that Scripture makes use of metaphor. You see, we're thinking about a metaphor in these meetings. We're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ as the shepherd. And on Monday in the will of the Lord we'll be thinking, or this afternoon and on Monday, we'll be thinking in those two middle Bible readings about the elder in the local assembly as the shepherd. And you know, when it comes to us and we're writing and And we want to take up a metaphor to to use it to explain and to communicate our meaning. We're limited to looking around and and to seeing what will best fit the truth that we have to communicate. But you know, it's a remarkable thing to me to consider that the the God whose word this is, the God whose word that we are studying this afternoon is the creator of the universe. And before ever John takes up his pen, or before ever the Savior speaks and says, I am the good shepherd, already in his wisdom God has, has designed creatures like sheep that are, that are so helpless and so defenseless and, and sometimes even a little bit stupid. And he has seen to it that in part of the order of creation, there will be a shepherd who will be able to meet the need of the sheep. And who will be able to provide for the sheep. And that when, he come, when, when Christ comes to speak about himself. And when, when scriptures comes to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. That within the order of creation there's just exactly the, the appropriate picture that can be used to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonder it is. Now that picture that is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to see it in something of its wonderful fullness in the passage that's before us this afternoon. That he will then take it up and use it of his human servants. And use it because the same care and the same concern and the same interest and consideration should be seen in them as was seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course it's not by any means an uncommon metaphor. And we have it uniting the four passages that, 
that are particularly for our consideration in these Bible readings. But, but even as we read through uh, John chapter 10, we will uh, see reference, we will see allusion, and the brethren will be mentioning other passages, taking us perhaps to, uh, to Numbers chapter 27, and to Jeremiah 23, to Psalm 118, and particularly perhaps to the passage that our brother David has on Monday, to Ezekiel and chapter 34. And we'll see some of these things, no doubt, as we make our way through the passage. But I want to keep my opening brief and I want to keep my opening simple. And so what I want to do is just speak very uh, simply about the setting of the passage and then about the settings of the passage and then get to the discussion so that we can benefit as much as possible from the help of our brethren. The setting of the passage. We are all, I'm sure, familiar with the, the structure of this this middle section of John's Gospel. And we're aware that as John records for us the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will record the Savior performing a series of signs that will take us right from the the wedding at Canaan, the marriage feast at Canaan, and the turning of the water into wine, and will take us right through to the resurrection of Lazarus, out from the grave in the chapters that follow this one. Now, I always feel slightly uneasy when I say that the miracles get more remarkable as we move through the gospel because, because any of them were, were miraculous, any of them was remarkable. And yet, I think we can easily see, as we think of the, the order of those miracles, we can see that, there's, there's, that, the, 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 that they're rising towards a crescendo, that, that John is moving towards this high point. And these, mind you, are signs which are communicating truth to us. They have a message for us. And they tell us about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it's very sad as we move through the gospel. And we discover that as the, as the signs increase in their magnitude and in their wonder. So in unison, in lockstep with them, increases the opposition of the Jews. And it will get to this point when we come to the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead that they plot to assassinate him, just that the the evidence of the Savior's power might be taken out of the way. And in this chapter, in John chapter 10, we're really moving very close to the the end of that that rising crescendo. It's very sad, mind you, when you read through chapter 9 of the Gospel. There are two things that are striking, I think. And, And first is this, the Savior has performed this remarkable sign. And the Jews are just, their backs are against the wall. And they're face to face with the truth. But they wriggle and they squirm. And they do anything that they can think of just to to avoid having to acknowledge that this is a sign performed by one who is truly God. But there's something else that's tremendous as we read through chapter 9. And that's the man who had his sight recovered. And I think it's, you know, he's a rare sort of man because because he he never says more than he knows. But all the opposition of of the Jews and of the Jewish leaders, it's not going to be sufficient to shake him from what he does know. And he's so, in a good sense, he's so obstinate, he's so clear, and he is so determined. And that chapter is a, is, is, is a, a very important background to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is linked to chapter 9 by its opening words, by, by the words, verily, verily. And in John's Gospel, you'll find that verily, verily will lead us to an expansion, uh, an explanation of what has gone before. It's a mark of, of continuity and not of discontinuity. The chapters are linked together as well by, by the audience. At the end of, of chapter 10, we find ourselves, we have the Lord. And we have the man whose sight has been restored. 
And we have the Pharisees. And that's the audience that the Savior speaks to as, as we move into chapter 10. And the chapter will tell us about the shepherd and the chapter will tell us about the sheep and the chapter will tell us about the thieves and the robbers and all three are represented. The Savior is there. And those religious rulers, the, the thieves and the robbers of the people of God are there. And there's a sheep that's there. And I think it's very important to keep that audience in our minds as we understand the passage. Because, first of all, it's important that we don't lose the, the edge of this passage. This is a passage of rebuke. And it's interesting that, that on a number of occasions we'll see as we make our way down through the verses, we have the negative first followed by the positive. And you know, I cannot help but feel that, that there was a note of anger in the Savior's voice. As he spoke of the thieves and of the robbers and of what they would do to the sheep. As he spoke of the, the hireling with, with his selfish priorities and interests. And so this is a passage of rebuke. But it's also a tremendous passage of encouragement. And what it must have meant for this man. One of the sheep. And he's learning that there's, there's a shepherd. No, that there's a good shepherd who's interested in me. And that's the other very important link between the passages. You remember, I've said we've spoken already about this man and, and he wouldn't back down and, and they cast him out. And that wasn't, that wasn't, mind you, that wasn't a one-off thing. That was a, a policy that they'd taken because you remember that his parents were afraid to say too much because, because the decision had been taken that if anyone was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'd be cast out. And it must have been a terribly traumatic thing for that man. He's thrust out from his community, thrust out from family and from friends. And it's so precious that as the Savior comes and he speaks, he says, now what what the shepherd does with his sheep is this, he puts them out. He's using the same word. And he says, what might seem to you like, like the careless, the heartless expulsion of your family and of your friends? I want, to, I want to show you that from a different perspective. And I want to tell you that the shepherd is, is putting out his sheep. The expression can mean driving them out. But just in case we should think that the Savior was going to drive out the sheep, he says he goes before. And we'll want to think about the wonderful significance of that expression. So that's the setting of the, the chapter within John's Gospel. It's important as well, of course, to, to keep in our mind the, the dispensational setting of this chapter. You know, John's Gospel is a, is a very dispensational Gospel. And one of the things that he will do throughout the Gospel is he'll take, he'll take the dispensation of law and, and the dispensation of grace and he'll put them right beside each other. So we'll read in chapter 1, for example, that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He'll say, of his fullness have all we received and grace instead of grace. You'll remember that he'll speak to the woman of Samaria there at the well and he'll say, this is what's happening now, but he says the hour is coming and, and it now is that you'll not be worshipping here and, and we'll not be worshipping in Jerusalem, but, but true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You'll remember that he speaks to his own towards the end of the Gospel concerning the Holy Spirit and he says he is with you and he shall be in you. So that what John is continually doing in his gospel is moving us on to new dispensational ground. And he's doing that in this chapter. And there are three things that, that three dispensationally distinctive things that we'll need to notice. First of all, you'll notice with me that there's a new sense under consideration. 
You see, some people, you know, some people, it seems, can hardly read their Bible without thinking that they ought to rearrange it. And that's happened with this chapter. And some people will read through chapter 9 and they say, it's all about seeing. And it is right up to the end of the chapter. And we come into chapter 10 and all of a sudden it's all about hearing. And, and, and there must, something must have shifted into the wrong place. And of course we know that that's not the case. And, and as we've stressed already, the, 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 the continuity of the chapters is really very clear to be seen. But, but you see, we're moving, aren't we, from a dispensation that was all about seeing. And that was all about what was visible. And the Jews seeking a sign. And we're moving to, to a different dispensational context where it's not all about seeing. But it's all about hearing. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. So there's a new sense. You'll notice that there's a new sphere under consideration here. And I'm glad of it, you know. That the Savior, he said, I have other sheep. And they don't belong to the, the fold of Judaism, but he says, I'm going to bring them too. And then you'll notice that there's a new structure. I, I have to confess to having a slightly bad conscience about that particular bit of alliteration, but, but I couldn't think of a better one. But, because the Savior says, there's a fold. And our authorized will say that he's calling them out and he's bringing the other sheep so that there might be one fold and one shepherd. But that's not what the verse is teaching. I can understand perhaps why the, why the translators followed uh, Jerome rather than Tyndale because, because they thought of Christianity as Judaism 2.0. And they thought that the, the fold of Judaism was, was going to be replaced by the, the fold of Christendom, a similar sort of structure. But what the Savior actually says is, there's going to be something new. Out of the fold they'll be brought. But they'll be brought into the flock. And you all know you've often been told the difference between a, a, a fold and a flock. The fold is defined by what is around the edge. It's defined by the perimeter. But when we're thinking of the flock, it's defined by the center. And the Savior is at the center. So the setting of the chapter in the book, the setting of the chapter dispensationally, let me just mention, uh, without expanding on it, the setting of the chapter chronologically. When we come down to the, the latter section of the passage, we'll discover this, that it's winter. And we want to think about the coldness, mind you, of that scene. The Savior walking in Solomon's porch, and it was winter. And we might want to think a little bit about the feast. It was the feast of the dedication. It was the feast that we would know as Hanukkah. And we might want... John, again, is very interested in feasts. And he's interested in presenting the Savior to us as the fulfillment of the feasts. And even though that perhaps goes beyond our section uh, this afternoon, we might well want to think a little bit about that. So that's the setting of the passage. And I hope we'll be able to understand and follow that through. Very quickly, and then I'm going to sit down the sections of the passage. And there's more high-quality alliteration here. I want us to think, first of all, about the parable. And that will occupy us for the, the first six verses of the chapter. Mind you, we'll need to think a little bit about the, the word parable. And our brethren will be pointing out that it's not the word that's used in the Synoptic Gospels. And that's fair enough. But they'll also have to explain to us what difference that makes. And how does it, how does it affect how, how we read these six, six verses and how we understand them? And we'll need to understand them because, because they're crucial to understanding the, the remainder of the passage. So we'll start with the parable. Then we'll want to think about the pictures. And there's two pictures and, and they're each repeated. So we have the door. And we have the door first in a negative sense. 
And then we have the door in a positive sense. We have the shepherd first in a negative sense. And we have the shepherd in a positive sense. And then we want to come to the porch. And we want to think about those winter scenes. And we want to think about the Savior as he walked. And the Savior as he spoke. That's a very sketchy outline. And I'll sit down. We'll have an opportunity just for a comment or two about the passage as a whole. And then we'll fill in some of the details of that first section. The parable section. But we do trust that we'll have helped to get to the end of the passage. And that we'll appreciate something. I was thinking again this morning of the title. There's, there's so much in the passage that we could think about. But I was thinking about the title that was put over it on the, on the program for the conference. Brethren and sisters, let's make sure that we get a good view this afternoon of the Good Shepherd and His renown. And we trust that God will give us help to do so. so the bad news is that we're already running behind where I hoped we'd be, but perhaps some of the brethren would have a, a comment or two on the Overall, the setting of the passage, the context of the passage. I was just just going to say, Brother Mark, just on, on a, I'm sorry. I was going to say, in a, in a general sense, when we come to this um, chapter and we second the uh, interesting difference in the presentation of the Lord Jesus as the Shepherd in uh, in the four Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, he's he's the sovereign Shepherd. A, a governor that shall rule, shepherd my people Israel. In Mark's gospel, he's the satisfying shepherd. The only reference there, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he spread them down on the green grass, and he fed the 5,000. The sovereign shepherd, the satisfying shepherd. Of course, in Luke, he's a seeking shepherd. The parable of the shepherd seeking the sheep. In John's gospel, he's the sacrificing shepherd. And with those four presentations in the four Gospels, we have four primary shepherds in the book of Genesis. So we have four shepherds in one book, and then we have four books about one shepherd. So the Lord Jesus is presented fully in these different passages. I was thinking, Brother Mark, um, of the connection you made between chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And you made the point there was no break in the, in the whole story, the whole narrative between the blind man coming into the section of the Good Shepherd. Just at the very last verse of chapter 9, uh, when, he's, when these men ask, are we blind also? Quite a tremendous question. And uh, the Saviour makes the point that confessed blindness is not the difficulty, but professed sight. Um, what can be done for a man that doesn't know if he can see, you know? And, um, but the whole issue of not knowing, not knowing whether they were a sheep, or not knowing if they were a wolf, or not knowing, wh- where, where do we stand in this? Is that, is that the connection with the, with the narrative that now unfolds? And he, as he brings the metaphor of the shepherd... He's making the point that every sheep knows who the shepherd is. And they also know who the wolves are. You know? So I just wonder if that's a, if a, if a connecting thought as we come in. That's very, very helpful. And there is a tremendous emphasis in, in chapter 10 on, on this whole issue, as you say, of knowing and of, of recognition. recognition and, and that is a reciprocal thing. And, mm-hmm. and we'll need to see that as we go through the verses. What's interesting to note, too, is that Israel, among all the nations that we read about in our Bible, should have known about shepherds. And yet they couldn't recognize that they were not being shepherded by the ones who claimed to be the shepherds. And the Lord Jesus is really pulling the veil away to let them have a look at what's going on in their own nation. And undoubtedly, John works much of that through as you go beyond that chapter. Thank you. So, just in connection with that, um, that dispensational thing that you mentioned, Brother Mark, in John chapter 3, there's a new family. 
born again. It's not natural links with Abraham, a new family. In John chapter 4, there's a new fountain spring inside. And so John chapter 5, there's a new future resurrection of life. John chapter 6, there's a new food, the bread of God, the living bread, far surpassing the manna, etc. John chapter 8, there's a new freedom. And now in John chapter 10, there's a new flock. So everything's moving forward massively. The law given by Moses, as you have mentioned, Moses has a great part in John's Gospel. Law given by Moses, chapter 3. Moses lifted up the servant, chapter 6. Moses gave us manna, chapter 7. Moses gave us circumcision. The last mention of Moses is chapter 9. The Pharisees say to this man, You're his disciple. We are Moses' disciple. You're moving with him. We are going to stay with Moses. You take him as the Messiah. We prefer Moses. We are not moving. So the Lord Jesus shows in chapter 10 that he is moving. He has been rejected. They are stuck with the old dispensation and firmly stuck. But he's moving sheep into a new era and into a new order. Absolutely. I think we'll need to, we'll need to get to the first section. And I've mentioned already the, 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 this word parable. Um, which is one of the things that we'll need to think about. Uh, we need, of course, as well to understand the picture that's presented to us here. Uh, Mr. Wilson says uh, this would not have been a, a difficult or a strange and unusual picture for Israel with their, their background, uh, their knowledge of shepherding. But the picture that's before us here, uh, and familiar no doubt to, uh, to most in the gathering, is, is of the fold, a, a communal fold. And so when the evening came, and the sheep were brought down, we were thinking about their movements last night, the sheep were brought down from the mountains and brought down from the pasture. For their safety, they would be driven into the fold. And a whole number of shepherds might have their, their sheep in the fold and the, the walls of the fold would be high and, and they would be secure. And there they would be safe for the night. But then the morning would come and the shepherd would come and the shepherd would call the sheep. And the, not all the sheep would, would leave uh, the fold. It's his own sheep. And his own sheep would respond. They would recognize the shepherd. They would respond to the voice of the shepherd. And they would leave the fold led by the shepherd. Not driven, as we've said, but led. So we'll need to think about that. And I think we need to think as well about the, the personnel in this section. And we have the thieves and the robbers. And we might want to think about that. I've suggested that our understanding of this expression has to be informed by the, the context of chapter 9. And I know that when you come down a little bit further and you come to verse 8, you might think that the thieves and robbers there were perhaps slightly different, that they were what we might call messianic pretenders. But I take it that in this section here, uh, the, the thieves and the robbers are, are the Pharisees, are those Jewish uh, rulers whose care was not for the sheep and whose influence on the sheep was not one that was beneficial. And, and that, might seem like, that might seem like a harsh indictment until you flick back to chapter 9. And you think of how they treated this man. And I think we can see the character... Uh, of, of the thief and the robber coming through there. We want to think about the shepherd. It's a lovely expression that's used in verse 2. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And we we'll want to think about the validation of that shepherd. And I think there are three things in the section that, that demonstrate the genuineness of the shepherd. He comes through the door. He's not climbing over the wall. The porter opens to him and the sheep recognize him. And those, those three things are three things that validate the identity of this shepherd as the shepherd of the sheep. We want to think about the porter, of course, and there may be room for diversity of opinion here. I'll just make two points. 
First of all, this, it's interesting that this is the only part of this parable that's not really expanded on. We're not really given any clues to identify the porter. And as I've said already, I think the point of the porter is primarily to, to emphasize for us that this shepherd is the, is the real thing. It's a, it's a validation of the shepherd that the porter opens to him. And then we want to think about the sheep. And as we said, there was, there was more in the fold than just the, the, sh- the sheep of the shepherd. But, but we don't think, we don't get an awful lot about sheep in the general sense. Because the focus of the passage is on his own sheep. Now, if the shepherd of the sheep is a lovely expression, then equally his own sheep is a precious expression. And they have a relationship. They're his own sheep. And they recognize him. And they respond to him. And so these are some of the things that we need to think about as we try to understand this section uh, of the chapter. When you go back to chapter 9, what we find is that there was one who was genuinely a sheep. And he wasn't called out, but he was put out. Mm -hmm. And of course, if they'd had their way, his end was going to be very near. But certainly what what we we learn uh, about the the fold is that not only was there somebody like that, but there were others there who were not his sheep, and they were left where they had been. So it is a a very complex picture that uh, John presents to us as you begin to try to identify just what was happening. My understanding, Mark, is that the word sheepfold here in verse number one is literally the fold of the sheep. There's two distinct ideas. There's the idea of the fold and there's the idea of the sheep, which I think is pertinent to the interpretation we might give to verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. The Lord Jesus doesn't say I am the door of the sheepfold. There's a distinction between the, the life and the relationship the sheep had with the shepherd as opposed to a new institution that was being created, a new, a new Israel, the very point you were making about a dispensation. When God saved me, he saved my so precious soul, and he brought me into his flock, he didn't bring me into a new church. In the sense of, I'll rephrase that, we were part of the church of the firstborn, which is in heaven, not an institution, a human an organization on earth, of which chapter 9 is an example that our brother Tom was, was speaking of. Thank you. You can see the, the watershed of Judaism here. In the, in the passage. There's the pain in between the two, and it's really the watershed of it. Yes. And you see that in the Gospel too, because he deals mostly with his own in the latter part of the Gospel. I think that's where our brother David's point about the, the, the moving on is, is very helpful, because, because when the shepherd had gone out, uh, all his sheep would be gone with him. I think the, the revised and, and the, the newer versions in, in, in uh, verse 4 have, when he put it forth, all his own. And there was not a one that was left behind. So those who were left behind after the shepherd had left, well, then very clearly they were not his own sheep. And there's a, there's a real moment of distinction coming in here. So it's, it's the very same as we have in Matthew 12 and 13. Matthew 12, there's a big break between the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. He moves out to the shore in chapter 13 and speaks in parable. So there's a break in chapter 9, speaks in parables here. Now, what, the door, the door of the Jewish fold. I'm not saying we should press, as you have said, Brother Mark, every detail here. What do you take the door? Not, nothing to the doorkeeper just at the minute. The door. Is that the door of prophetic scripture or the door of just divine revelation? O- Old Testament scripture pointed out an avenue by which the Messiah would come to the nation. 
He used that avenue. None of these other men who were climbing over the wall had used the predicted avenue. Or is that overreading it? I don't think you could prove it, but I think it, it's, it's certainly very uh, helpful to see it that way. To, to come through the door, you, you have to line up with it. You, you just have to be in line with the path, in line with the, the space that would let you through. Nobody else could have done that. And here's someone, he comes, and how do we know that he's, he's the real deal? If I can use that expression, it's because he's going to come through the door. And you could very well apply it in that sense. So, so Micah, Micah told us where he would come. Isaiah told us how he would come. Daniel told us when he would come. And that's the aperture, the prophetic aperture by which the Messiah will reach the nation. The Lord Jesus took them all. Virgin birth and so on. Whereas these other false claimants didn't come by that door. A door would also speak about security, wouldn't it? And very often that's how we look at this picture as the one who would provide the security for those sheep until such times as he would move them into new pasture. So are we happy that the, the maybe it's, maybe I should just not, not raise the issue and move on, but the thieves and the robbers, uh, are we happy that with the context of Ezekiel 34 in the back of our minds and with the context of chapter 9 before us, that this is, this is really quite a, a broad description here referring to, to, to the Pharisees and to those who were rulers within the nation uh, but who hadn't recognized the claims of the Lord Jesus. I, I had wondered, I know you maybe said you wouldn't push it neither, but I, I had wondered if in Thief and Robber there are two, two sides of these false pretenders. The thief works by stealth, the robber works by force, as you know. Judas, John mentions a thief and he mentions a robber. Judas was a thief crafty man, hypocritical man. Barabbas was a robber. He was an insurrectionist against the Romans. And I wondered if the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and so on, all that went with that was under the thief. And some pretenders who wanted by violence to throw off the Roman yoke and misled the nation wasn't indicated by the robbers who resorted to violence. But I'm not pushing that. As you say, the the term that's used might might lead you in that way. I had wondered whether if there could also be a sense that the thief was was what he would do, and the robber is how he would do it. Because so, that seems to be, later on in the passage, those two things are taken up. What he'll do, he'll take, and how he'll do it, he'll do it violently, he'll kill and he'll destroy and so on. But the true shepherd used neither of them. He didn't need stealth or deceit, and he didn't need force. No, and in fact, he's exactly the opposite in, in, in what he does. Exactly. <laughs> he presented himself at the door to the nation. Yes, yes. And who was the doorkeeper then? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are, there are a, a variety of views. John the Baptist is, is maybe the, the most popular candidate. Uh, Westcott, I think, is, is quite convenient. He says it's the Holy Spirit working through his agents, and you can sort of pick whichever agent you want, which is, makes, the, makes the task a bit easier. I think it's very striking that, that we don't really get any help from the passage to, to yeah. understand who the porter was, which to me suggests that the, our, the emphasis of our understanding must be on, on what's the result of the porter opening, and as I've said already, that's the idea of validation, rather than pinning down the identity of the porter. But I might be wrong. I think that's where the emphasis must lie, is that the Lord Jesus matched every criteria, criteria that the nation was expecting. And uh, 
whoever the portrait should be, whether we look at uh, those who were waiting for Messiah and saw all the signs and recognized them, that's fine, but I too wouldn't want to tie, to tie it down too firmly. I, I'm very comfortable with John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, porter, the porter is a man that introduces the person at the door to the sheep. He opens the door and introduces. It was the prophet Samuel that introduced the first king. And it was the last of the prophets. And in the context of John's gospel, he's not the light, but he's a witness to the light that all men through him might believe. So it's John the Baptist in this gospel who most definitely behold the Lamb of God and so on, introduces the Messiah to the nation. So the porter is the introducer. And to me, it, if the glove fits, wear it. So. <laughs> in, in, which, in which case, you limit the sleep of the sheep that were called out to those who were with ba- the Baptist. I, the likes of Andrew and John and so on earlier, the very thing the men who responded to John the Baptist's ministry, when the Messiah called, they were the very men that moved out, but that's anticipating I think that's the point though if if we accept that they're leading them out out of the door of Judaism, then the porter has to be the one who, how would Israel know who the true shepherd is, and I take the Baptist as a very good example of that of someone who would fit that in criteria so we're agreeing that the fold is they're being led out of the fold of Judaism here are we doing that? Yes, Good. Good. We haven't heard from our brethren on the floor, and I'm, I'm keen to move on, but if there's anybody who has, has help for us on these verses, an alternative identification of the porter or anything like that. <laughs> to the porter, I once asked Jim Flanagan. I was of the opinion it was the Holy Spirit, and Jim very politely and uh, with great uh, touch, he says, can we not let it be both the Holy Spirit using John the Baptist to open the door? <laughs> Happy enough with that. So, th- this whole movement, Margaret, to come to the, in John chapter 8, they went out. That was the shame of a guilty conscience. At the end of John chapter 8, the Saviour went out of the temple. In John chapter 9, they cast them out. In John chapter 10, he calls them out. So again, these outs are just showing a break with Judaism and the whole structure. And I think there's maybe a practical point to be made here as well, that, that what had, had seemed to the man like a casting out was a, was a calling out by the Saviour. Uh, and you know, we can easily see separation as an onerous thing. Uh, and we can look back you know, wistfully at, at what we've left behind. But, but there was a positive sense here. Um, and it must have been of, of tremendous value to this man when he realized that actually the Savior was, was going before and to lead him out. So we'll leave that section then and we come to uh, the end of, of the section, verse 6. They, they didn't understand the things for which he spake unto them. And we have another verily, verily. And we move to these pictures and one of the things I think that we have to be quite clear about is that the... This is not an expansion of, the, the detail, of all of the details that have gone before. So that the door that is being presented to us here in the first section, Christ is the shepherd, and he's presenting to him, him to us now as the door. And it's not, we're moving to a new context, we're moving to a new setting here. Uh, and, and that may be 
uh, that, that may be something that's worth, worth keeping in mind. As we said, we have, the, we have the, the image repeated. And first of all, we have the negative sense. Someone has said we have the door closed first of all. I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And then we have this wonderful and this positive sense. I am the door. By me, if any enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And that's a, that's a lovely expression. And it matches the expression that we have at the end of verse 10. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And it has well been said that what, the, what Christ was calling his sheep into was, was neither a fortress nor a prison. He was calling them to liberty. He was calling them to freedom. And he was calling them to food. And when we read the verses, I think we could hardly help but think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. So it's a, it's a total contrast to what they were being called out from what it was that they were being called into. So maybe we'll take this, these, this pair of door uh, images first of all and think a little about those. Can I ask you, um, breaking the rules, Mark, I know you're going on, but just give me a brief answer. Two questions on the first six verses. Putteth them forth, calleth them and leadeth them out. Putteth them forth. You mentioned a wee bit of force there, could be said, driveth them forth. All I want to ask is this, is there a, maybe the slightest hint that there may be some of the sheep will be slightly reluctant to leave and they'll need a wee bit of a nudge. Because that did happen. Mm-hmm. Even Peter was, Peter was, he needed a wee bit of a nudge just to get him out completely. Mm-hmm. Some will come quite readily. Others maybe need a wee bit of a push. And I think there's a wee hint of reluctance to leave. And that's still, there's something about human nature loves the formality of religion. We're comfortable. Even denominational life. Everything's nicely structured. And believers are comfortable there. And they're very, very reluctant to leave the rigid comfort of just man-made structures. And they need just that sometimes an extra little bit of encouragement. Second question I want to ask you just a word. How do the strangers whom they will not follow differ from the thieves and the robbers? Or do they differ? Or, I mean, in the representation I, had, I hadn't seen particularly a difference between them. I thought we were still dealing broadly with, with hostile agents of one sort or another. Had you see, I take it you had seen a distinction? A distinction in this sense, that the thieves and robbers were men who were damaging the fold, climbing up over the sheep that were in the fold. But then the stranger was a man who tried to distract the sheep who were actually following the shepherd out of the fold. You see a difference there. So are you thinking of that in the context of the, the people that read John's Gospel for the first time and the attacks that were happening then? That type of thing. Yeah. So that there were Pharisees in Judaism, but then even after people left Judaism and were following the shepherd on the new ground, there were Judaizers who would try and call them back. They weren't wall climbers. They were just distractors and so on. So sorry for I'll go ahead into that new section there. Yeah, sorry, just on that, uh, Mark, uh, I think you made a very vital point. We're looking at something different. We're looking at something new now, and we have to keep that very clear. I think it, it, you know, it's emphasized from the fact that the door and so on in verse 9, there's a going in and a going out, whereas in the earlier verses it's a going out never to return. So it's definitely two different things that are being looked at here. Thank you. That's very helpful.
on a more positive note, we have the two great I am statements that come at this juncture. You, some comment on that? You go ahead. Well, clearly, I, I, the I am was something that was well known to, to all, all who were reared in Judaism, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. They knew who the I am was. But here they were recognizing that the one who was the good shepherd he's going to tell them is before them. And he is, of course, also Jehovah himself. And clearly, it's so different from these other people that we're speaking about, the thieves, the robbers, and the strangers. Thank you. And, and I think it's, it's for that reason, maybe amongst others, that when we come down towards the end of the section, they're, they're saying, are you the Messiah or not? Because really, that's, the, that's the, the, the logical conclusion based on all that we have in the verses down to that point. Mark, maybe you could give me some help. Just sorry for taking you back, but nobody has mentioned uh, he calleth his own sheep. This is coming out of Judaism. Who are those own sheep? He seems to know them by name. I think that's very significant. Thank you. Well, uh, I think we've, uh, we had a discussion on the porter and uh, on, on John the Baptist. The suggestion was made that they were those who had uh, responded to the, the ministry of John the Baptist. And certainly I think it is very important to see that these were already in the enjoyment of, of a relationship with the Savior. They were already his own sheep. And already they recognized his voice. And already they knew him. So that these were those who had believed. They were amongst the fold of Judaism. But now the time has come that they have to be moved on. That they have to be moved out of Judaism. And that's, the, that's what we have here. So just to go back to, to a, th a thing that you already mentioned, Brother Mark. These verses that we're in now from verse 7 on. They are not an explanation of the parable. So that when the Lord threw the parable of the sower, then he gave an explanation point for point back to the parable. That's not what happens here. It's a whole expansion on taking up the figure. Now these two doors here, I take them to be quite different. The, the door in verse number 1 is the door into the fold. The Lord took that door. I take the door of verse 7 to be the door out of the fold. Mm -hmm. I am the door of the sheep. That's not us. That's the door. He was the door to let the true sheep out of the Jewish fold. The door out. But then the door of verse number 9 is not the door out of the fold. It's the door into salvation. And he doesn't say for that door, I'm, I'm the door for the sheep. Because I wasn't one of the sheep. I wasn't a Jewish sheep. He said, in the door of salvation, if any man. So he said, I'm the door to take the Jewish sheep out of the fold. But he said, I'm also the door to bring any man, Jew or Gentile, whoever he may be, into a new relationship and into a new position. So there are two different doors. The door out and the door in. And I think it is, as you say, very significant that he doesn't say of any sheep. Um, I know the man is in italics, but we've given the translators of the authorised a, a kicking. We can give them full marks for that one. The, the picture is being left behind just for a moment here. And we have it expanded out of any man enter in. Uh, is the uh, verse 9, the going in and the going out, these are the saved David has said the, the saved uh, coming out from Judaism. What are they going in now and go coming out from? Is this the saved coming in and going out from the presence of God? 
Is this indicating something of the secret of our service, that we go in before we go out? Mm-hmm. We're a holy priesthood before we're a royal priesthood? Mm-hmm. Is that what's been taught here? Mm-hmm. I think you could certainly, uh, you could certainly uh, apply it in that way. I mean, I think the expression has, as it had, for example, in, the, in relation to, to Paul, uh, when, when he, he came uh, amongst the disciples, he was with them going in and going out. It, it has really uh, the connotation of, of, of living, of, 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 of life, of just moving to and fro. But certainly, I think we can take it a, a stage further and say that the order is significant. Uh, and I think that's, that's helpful, that this is, this is the enjoyment of communion with the shepherd. Uh, and it's finding pastures. There's not just freedom, but there's, there's food as well. There's nourishment. Um, this, is, this is life more abundantly. So it's, it's a wee bit like what we have earlier in the gospel in connection with the Holy Spirit. The well of water, the spring of water springing up into everlasting life. So the Holy Spirit and the believer, it has a Godward dimension in worship, John chapter 4. But then the very same Holy Spirit who springs up in worship in John chapter 8, out of his belly he flows out in witness. So going into worship, and going out to witness is very close to what our brother Brian has just said. Thank you. But it also stresses the very fact that these sheep have liberty. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And, and again, the, you know, this is not, this is not the sheep uh, in the first section cowering within the walls of the fold. And you're not able to take them out. They can't be outside because it's too dangerous. And they, they, must be, they must be hemmed in. They must be walled in. They must be contained. This is, this is something far greater and far grander than that. Uh, you have that, that freedom. You have, as you say, that liberty. Because of the shepherd, isn't it? It's because of the shepherd, yes. Craig, do you want to? No, I just wondered the, the context of the thieves and robbers. Um, I know we're, in the, we're bringing them out of the fold of Judaism. I know that's the context, but just the picture of the thieves and robbers, when we get to the next bell read in Acts 20, they'll be there again. They never go away. I know that the, the, the interpretation of verse 8 is all that ever came before me. That's the past. But it strikes me in verse 10 that they're still there. And there are maybe just young folk here and just wondering who the thieves and robbers are. Well, you'll know them. They're not, they've got, they're not got the voice of Christ. They, they only want to harm. And when you see the works finished, they, they spoil a few sheep. They always have an effect. And uh, there's always a few missing from assemblies as a result of their work. They're alive and they're well, and they're so distinctly different to the, the way the Saviour operates. Sorry, and just another thought on the going in and out. Um, these are two of the things that sheep enjoy from a shepherd, because there is a going out, there's security, and the going out, finding pasture, there is food. So there is security in Christ, and there is sustenance from Him. So it's the provision that the shepherd has for the sheep seen in two different aspects. Thank you, that's very helpful. It's Numbers 27 that you alluded to. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah, that there would be a man to go before them. Uh, our brother Craig has, has touched on a point that we didn't mention in relation to these verses, uh, and that's in verse 8. All that ever came before me are thieves and, and robbers. And I wonder if, if anyone has, has anything to say about that verse. And are we seeing a slightly different set of thieves and robbers than and what we've been thinking about already, or is that pushing a distinction where there isn't really one to be made? Is it not just a declaration that, uh, that God's movement among the nation is now quite different from what had been, and he's closing all those, those uh, ways in which the people were kept in bondage, and uh, these are, he, he's ending and in indicating that 
forget all of the, what has been happening over the last century or so in that nation's history and go forward into blessing with Christ. And I wondered if, if that was, was, was maybe behind as well the fact that, that we have in these passages we have the negative followed by the positive. Because the negative was what they had known, it was what they had been familiar with. But now as we've been emphasizing, that was to, to be left behind. We would think, you know, give us the positive first, and then, you know, when we're in the enjoyment of that, just, just put in the word of warning at the end. But that's not what happens uh, throughout these verses. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, it is good again to see that, that, that we're moving on and we're moving into a new era here. Is that, is that about Hebrews, David on the, the, need, the need for instruction to know that we're danger we're back? Yes. Yeah. And the, the present tense in verse 9 is quite a verse 8. All that came before me are. Yes. So they were right there. Yeah. Right there, just in, uh, um, On that, David, would you see uh, the possibility of, of this being a, a before in terms of space rather than of time? I think so. Right. Yeah. I and I think this verse is, you said, You're the door to let the sheep out. Why did they not go out before? What kept them all waiting to your eye? He said, because the true sheep could see that the men that were there were just thieves and robbers. And the reason they've only moved now is because they can recognize the voice of the legitimate shepherd. Mark, in relation to verse 9, you were speaking about what are these thieves and robbers today? I think it is the false teachers who would want to come in by stealth mm-hmm. and they would present something that like, looks like a, an easygoing believism gospel and present uh, an easygoing Christian life. And then the Lord Jesus is the very opposite in verse 10. He says, I am come what you made of life. But this life is more than ordinary life. He qualifies it by saying, and that they might have it more abundantly. It's like grace. It's abundant grace. It's so full you'll recognize the thieves and robbers because they'll not give you anything like what Christ has given you. I think that's helpful. And I think you know, it, it's, it's tremendous to think of, of the Savior as he spoke those words and, and to think of the contrast that he presented with, with what, what these, these Jewish people had known in, in terms of their religious uh, leaders and so on. But it's good too to think of it in terms of the people who read, opened John's Gospel and read it for the first time, who were under attack from, from false teachers, from those who were just... As Craig has said, they never go away and they were still trying to destroy, they were still trying, trying to make a prey. And again, it's good for us as we come to it that we see that this is something that is still relevant for us. Even we get it in its dispensational context and so on. But it's good for us to remember that still the thieves and the robbers are, are wandering around and that still we need to be preserved and we need to be kept. And that there's security in the Savior. And that there is this one uh, who, who, in contrast to the thief, and the thief, it's a dreadful list of things that he does, steal and to kill and to destroy. Well, he says, there's, there's one, and far from killing, he's come, I've come that they might have life. And far from stealing, he's come to give that they might have it more abundantly. The fact, the fact too, is that John was writing a good bit later. Yes. So he was writing to an educator, a churches that were going on. So it was very instructive. Yeah, I think there's, there's a relevance you know, to this material at the time when John was writing his gospel because of those attacks that, that the believers uh, were being subjected to. If, uh, if the gospel was written, and there's a fair wee bit can be said in favour of this, I'm not saying exclusively, if the gospel was primarily and initially written after the destruction of the temple, 
to help spread the gospel amongst Jews. These things have I written that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ to help Jews who were devastated by the destruction. He said, look, he said, you have lost your sanctuary, you have lost your city, and you have lost your, your leaders. And he says, you're absolutely devastated. You seem to have nothing left. He said, don't be getting, don't lament about that. He says, you've only lost the shadows. I want to tell you the real shepherd, the real sanctuary, the real substance is to be found in Christ. So it was a useful tool from that standpoint. And we still give out gospel to John. (laughs) Mark, just on the the last bit of verse 8, I think you've dealt with the first bit of it. The sheep did not hear them. If we interpret the sheep just as Israel, of course there was many that listened to false teachers in the past. But it must be those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. People like Simeon, who takes the Lord Jesus in his arms and say, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. They were looking for the Messiah, and the Messiah had now come. And I think, I think the, the fact here is stated that they didn't hear them, but uh, as we follow down through the verses, we're going to understand a little bit more about why it was mm-hmm. that, they didn't, that they didn't hear them. And I'm doing what I shouldn't be doing and, and, and uh, turning to speak to you. So. Yes, Stephen, could I just ask a question? You said in these verses there's a new context, there's something greater and grander. Do you see the sheep of verse 11 coextensive with the any man of verse 9, referring to all who go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies? I hadn't necessarily thought of it in that way. I mean, I think uh, certainly as we've seen, uh, the any man entering in is, is a very broad statement now that's not to say that the, the, the statement in verse 11 suggests anything narrower or suggests any limitation of the sacrifice that is made to say that the shepherd would give his life for the sheep is not to say that he only gave it for the sheep uh, and I think that's, uh, that's helpful, I think, I think it's, it's useful for us to, to, to rather than to, to see the sheep in the same sense right the way through the passage uh, except where we're told that there are other sheep, in which case we obviously uh, have to understand them differently. But that is helpful to move us on to the Good Shepherd section because, uh, because we do need uh, to keep moving forward. So we have this great statement, I am the Good Shepherd. And then we have what, what I would suggest is perhaps a, a statement of a principle. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And I take it that this, in a sense, would be true of, of any Good Shepherd. You think of David, for example. When the wild beasts came, they... Uh, he, didn't, he didn't think twice he put his life in danger but of course really that, that would if he had really given his life that would have been a very limited benefit to the sheep and the re- that is the reason why I think we, we're going to move in this section to hear about the resurrection because the good shepherd that gives his life a dead shepherd is of no use to the sheep but a shepherd that has died and has risen again uh, is a shepherd who is able to take care for the sheep. So we have a statement here, as I've suggested, and I don't think we can exclude uh, the, the work of Christ from this. I mean, it would be, it would be a strange thing to, to read these words, but I think it's a statement of principle. And then we have another statement of principle. He that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth him, and scattereth the sheep. And why does he do that? It's not so much because he's bad. It's not so much because he's evil. It's because he has no investment in the sheep. The sheep really mean nothing to him. And he flees because he is a hireling. And he cares not for the sheep. And then we have this this tremendous contrast. I am the good shepherd. And know my sheep. And am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even know I the Father. But we'll perhaps leave uh, verse 14 just for the moment. 
and think on these verses from uh, 11 to verse 13. It might be helpful for younger believers to mention that it's not the only uh, adjective used with the, in respect of the Lord Jesus against the noun of shepherd. You want to tell us about the other ones? Well, I was going to leave that to, the, to, to you, but uh, happy to, to, to comment on it, because obviously we, we learn that he, he, he is uh, the great shepherd, and we learn that he is the chief shepherd, and obviously these are uh, an outworking of what's been happening over the centuries and what will yet happen, and uh, obviously it's useful to younger ones to be conscious of that, and to look at Hebrews 13.20 and at 1 Peter 5 verse 4, then these would help them to, to, pick the, to get the whole picture of the Lord Jesus as he was coming to the great work of salvation on to, through our own period and to the future that lies ahead. Thank you. And that's certainly something to watch out for uh, in, in our brother Craig's Bible reading. Mark, I thought in verse 11 there was a lovely illustration of this good shepherd protecting and giving his life for the sheep in this very gospel at Gethsemane when they came to take him he said if you seek me let these go their way yeah thank you yeah. so in the previous verses Mark the main emphasis was that he was the genuine shepherd whereas now the emphasis is that he was the good shepherd and I think you mentioned earlier that some of these figures play to the Lord Jesus then they play to his people and the different gifts in the early part of the gospel, we see the Lord Jesus as the great evangelist, reaching Nicodemus and the woman dealing. In this part, we see him as the pastor, the shepherd. And in the next chapters, the upper room and so on, we'll see him as the great teacher. teacher yes. And as the pastor, you have emphasized the good shepherd. You have emphasized the link with the previous chapter. Isn't there also a, a, a link with the next chapter? The shepherd care for Mary and Martha. So that in chapter 9, the good shepherd looked after a man who was cast out. But in chapter 11, he looked after two sisters who were cast down. And he's the good shepherd in both senses. Mark, I was just thinking, you would might have expected to say, I am the true shepherd. There's been false people in the, in the first section. And we know that true is a good Johannian term. The true bread, the true life, the true vine and so on. And um, it doesn't say that though, it says good shepherd, which I understand has a thought of loveliness was within it, attractive, wisdom, all of these things are found contained within it. And of course that's in keeping with this gospel, this is the gospel of intimacy, this is the gospel of the, of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's just something about the loveliness of Christ that's being brought out before us, not just the fact truth against false, it's the gospel of grace and truth. Thank you. I was just actually going to, to come to that point, and there's one translation that puts it like this, I am the, the noble shepherd. And that would perhaps come up with ideas of, of superiority, of excellence. Someone else has rendered it the model shepherd. So it's speaking of the, the quality of, of this one who's the shepherd of the sheep. Sorry, somebody else. Is there someone? No? Oh, someone down there. We used to have a brother highly esteemed amongst us, and he used to preach. I heard him at it a few times. And I just want your comment on it. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he emphasized that wasn't Calvary. He said that was the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And he was always giving and helping and sacrificing for others. He gave his whole life for the benefit of others. And he said later in the chapter it says that he laid down his life. That's Calvary. But this is his ministry. What do you think of that? 
Well, he was a. I hope you say not very much. <laughs> he was an esteemed brother, and therefore I hesitate to <laughs> hesitate to criticize him. I certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have taken the bath by now. I have to he, say. He's in heaven. He's in heaven. That's good. The, the point is that this is the same verb. Yes. The good shepherd laid down. It's the same verb as later on. And Peter said later on, he says, Lord, I lay down my life for you. Peter didn't mean I'll give you three years of ministry. He meant I'll die for you. So I think this is very definitely Calvary. So we have this tremendous statement about the, the good shepherd and what the good shepherd will do, why he will do it. He will do it for the sheep. And then we have, we have the hireling. And we are back asking the same question. You know, where, do we, where do we connect this man with the thieves and the robbers and, and the strangers? Uh, the, the characteristic, again, the emphasis on the passage is, is, is this, that the hireling has no relationship with the sheep. That, the, they, that they, really, they really mean nothing to him. All he cares about, if you're a hireling, all you care about is, is getting your, your, your hire at the end of the day. You, you've nothing invested in the sheep. You've no relationship with the sheep. And I think we're going to have that contrasted in a most remarkable way uh, as we move down uh, into uh, verse 14. But had anyone seen anything more particular uh, in the... Uh, I was going to say any brethren with better imagination. That's not fair. Uh, anything seen anything more particular in, in, the, uh, in the hireling here? I, I, I did, definitely. But one ahead. My brother, Craig was going to speak there. Were you? Go ahead. No, you go on. Go on. No, just you mentioned it there. The, the, the first good shepherd is because of his investment in the sheep. That's why he's so good. And the second one, as you're coming to, is because of his intimacy. He knows them and he has a closeness with them. But the hireling, the hireling, well, obviously there's a mercenary thing in this. There's, in the job for what you get out of it, there's wages, there's payment. I took the hireling to be a representative of the priests. So that the priestly class, they creamed off out of the temple a very, very rich, affluent lifestyle. And they were in the job just because of what they were getting out of it. The Pharisees weren't like that. They were forceful and hypocritical and they wanted to reach and control the people. But then the hiring, he just did the job. And when... I'm, I'm going to declare my whole hand here now. When the wolf came, that's the Romans. So my imagination's powerful. <laughs> When the wolf came, the first people to clear it off was the priesthood. And they left the temple just to the Roman. So the Roman wolf came and just gobbled everything up because the men who were there to look after it and should have defended and looked after it, they had so creamed off and so lived selfishly, they just departed to save their own skin. There, that's maybe overreading again. Have mercy on them. Isn't it interesting, uh, I'm not, not comment on that, but isn't it interesting that... Uh, in each of the passages that we'll be looking at over this weekend, the issue of mercenary motive will come up. And doesn't it seem to be that this, this, this role, this, this office, this work of the shepherd is something that can so very easily be corrupted by, uh, by, by the lure of, of financial gain. And I think even as the Saviour speaks uh, of those who were, were hirelings, who were in it for what they got out of it, I think it's important for us to keep that in mind when we, when we come to passages like this afternoon that deal with that more directly. Yes. Also, we should not forget, there was a man called Judas. He held the bag, and he was in it for what he could get out of it. So he, he was undoubtedly a hireling. And of course, if it had not been that the Lord Jesus unveiled what he was, there's absolutely no doubt he would have fled.
and the, the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the rejection of the Lord Jesus was concerned was when he cleansed the temple cast out the changers of yeah. money cleared it of the harlings they couldn't tolerate it anymore and they put him on the cross mm-hmm. and you've not told us about the wolf Mark I think they will introduce a new, a new concept here it's no longer the thieves and robbers and the hireling but a wolf's coming he is indeed, and he's going, to, he's going to scatter the sheep. And certainly, certainly that was something that, that the Romans did. Um, but I find myself feeling squirmy and uncomfortable when I'm commenting definitively on things that aren't in the passage. I'm very happy with, with, with David's explanation, but um, well, then, I just, If you're happy with it, just say it. I was wondering, the other one fits David so well, the Saul in before him there. The Harling. He's the he's Saul, Saul, King Saul. Whereas the other one, the next one, fits David well. He didn't run from the from the from the sheep or, or from the the the, 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 the the wolf was it? No, it was a bear. Yeah. But delivered the sheep. He was no Harling. No, well, David is certainly one of those examples that, that would tell us something about what a, what a good shepherd looks like and what he does. Was there somebody over here? Oh, yes. Just in my own personal study, I was noticing that this is the fourth I am with a predicate, like I am thus something, and it speaks to us of Calvary. I want to support that because whenever you have the seven I am's in, in John's Gospel without a predicate, just something I am, I notice that it, the fourth one is also Calvary. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. And so I'm giving support to what was said earlier, that verse 11 is very definitely Calvary. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I appreciate your caution, Brother Mark. No problem. And maybe it's overreading, but certainly, some take the wolf to be the devil. Maybe it was not mentioned. But certainly when the Roman wolf came and caught them, caught the nation, the priests cleared off, the next thing the wolf did scattered them. And the dispersion of AD 70, the results of it are with us still. Yeah. Well, so, I, if it's, like as you say, it fits whether we should just read it then. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that image you know, of, of the wolf coming and of the sheep just. I mean, it is AD 70, really, just the way in which they were just dispersed. Well, I'm, get a I, I, I'm coming back down a bit now. <laughs> the, the, the hireling and the, fleece, the thief and the robber were humans in the nation. The wolf is an animal from the outside. So hardly thief and lover represent internal problems. The wolf represents an invading Gentile force coming from another angle. And that's as far as I go. We, move on to the next we better verse. move on. Yes, we'll be, we'll be falling behind. So we move then to, 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 to verse uh, 14 and verse 15. And these are, these are remarkable verses, brethren and sisters. We've been, we've been working, as, as, as we've just been reminded, we've been working in the metaphorical context. And the Savior is using a variety of, of metaphors to, to present himself and, and to present truth to us. But as he speaks about the relationship that there is between him and his sheep, there isn't a human picture that will give him what he needs. There isn't a human picture that will, will emphasize the, the closeness, the, the intimacy of that relationship. And so to, to explain to us the knowledge of the shepherd, no human shepherd with, with, with ovine sheep could ever, could ever come to this because, because a shepherd is a man and, and a sheep is a sheep. But here he says, now the knowledge that, 
I have of my sheep and the knowledge that the sheep have of me. The thing that I'll have to use to explain that to you is the relationship between the Father and the Son. I, I don't know if we can really if we can really grasp that or really take it in. But it's a wonderful truth that we have before us in these verses. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. That's the explanation for what we have in verse uh, number 14. I know my sheep and I'm known of mine. So you don't, you don't put a full stop at the end of verse 14? No. You just put a comma yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You need that even. Yeah. This whole issue, Mark, of knowing things is, of course, a major theme in the gospel which you alluded to in your opening. This is the gospel that starts that he came into his own and his own received him not. He was in the world and the world knew him not. The Baptist ministry is, there standeth one among you whom ye know not. You get to the end of the gospel in John 21 and he says, children, have ye any meat? And of course they had to say nothing and they knew not that it was Jesus. And there's also verses like John 14 where, how long has he been with me and has not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. So that knowledge is something that's progressive within the gospel. And yet there are certain things that you do know in John's Gospel. In John 9, the man says, One thing I know, once I was blind, but now I see. And here in John, in John 10, we know that if you're a sheep, you'll know the shepherd. And so, if you're saved at all, you've come to love the Lord Jesus. You'll know about the day you were saved. There's no confusion about it. You'll know, of your, you'll know about salvation. Salvation is something very clear. And you'll love the Lord Jesus, and you'll have an appreciation for Christ. And that's at least one major knowing thing in the chapter. Is the impact of the verse not saying to us also that this shepherd ministry was one that the Father had given the Lord to be involved in. And he's indicating that the Father knew him and knew what he was doing, but equally that he knew the Father's will. And he's really saying that the shepherding is all part and parcel of the work that the Father gave the Son to do and that the Father will continue to use after the the Son will be exalted on high. So that that our relationship with the shepherd is not only reflected by the relationship of the father and the son, but it's actually rooted in that relationship between the father and the son. Just just a technical thing, Mark. Folks will not follow this for for a minute. Just I want to ask you this to help me. You know very well that the neuter plural, what sheep is, can take a singular verb. So my question is, in verse number three, the sheep, plural, here, Singular, his wife. Verse number four, the sheep, plural, follow, singular, him. For they, no, plural. Verse 14, I know my sheep and am known. When it's hearing and following, it's the singular verb. When it's knowing, it changes to the plural verb. Any significance? Well, I would take it that this is something that is, is done by each individual sheep. Um, this is something that is, we've used the word intimacy, and it's not only intimate, but it's individual. At the beginning of the chapter, we had the shepherd, uh, and he didn't just stand in the fold and say, hey, sheep, and they all came. He called them by name. They were individuals. And here the relationship that we have, it's not the shepherd and the sheep as, as a mass, as a group. It's the shepherd and the sheep as individual sheep. And I think that's a very precious thing. A question that, that I would like to ask, um, we, we've, we've thought about the, uh, the significance of these verses. Is this 
do these verses, verse 14 and, and, and verse 15, do these verses explain, help to explain to us why it is that the sheep will not hear the, the voice of the stranger? Do we have the idea here, as we think of, I know my sheep, uh, according as uh, the Father knoweth me, so know I the Father. Do we have the idea here of a shared relationship? A shared nature. There's a shared nature between the Father and the Son. Uh, and there's, we've come to, to share in, the, in a nature. That means we have this, I hesitate to use the word organic, but I can't think of a better one. That there's this link that we have with the shepherd. Uh, is that pushing the verse too far? There's something that John will take up uh, later on. We have the vine and the branches and so on. Do we see a, a trace of that here? It could be. It could be an affinity between father and son and an affinity between shepherd and sheep. I, I took the knowledge to be the knowledge of appreciation and the knowledge of affection. The father appreciates the son and the father has deep affection to the son and so has the son to the father and so have the sheep and the shepherd. It's appreciation. And the, but all of that, I see you have a deeper thought, all of that is based on an affinity yes. between the two. Yes. I know those are very insightful. Brother Craig has been reminding us of knowing the knowing in, in the gospel. I was just thinking of another one and maybe it helps us in what you're talking about. This is life eternal. John 17, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom I have sent. Mm-hmm. That is a relationship we have come into, a knowledge of God, as well as the knowledge he has of us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Someone over here? Am I right in thinking that there's no mention here, or, or, or even the implication here, of any sheep, genuine sheep, remaining inside the fold? The sheep hear his voice, and they follow him out of the fold. Yes, I mean, we, we, we've long since led them all out. And in fact, as I said, mentioned back in verse 4, um, some of the, uh, the manuscripts will give you the reading, he leadeth forth all his own. There's not a one left behind. Well, to bring that to our present day, do we still expect every genuine believer to come out and gather to the name of the Lord Jesus? Let us go forth at the camp bearing his reproach. Or how is it? that we hear of believers, professed believers maybe I should say, leaving the assemblies and going back into the camp again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate what our brother Bertie is saying there in application, but just, just so we're clear, when the Lord called his own out of the fold in the early verses, the fold was still full of sheep. And there were sheep. There were sheep. But there weren't his own sheep. He calleth out his own sheep. But the fold was still full of Jewish sheep. And there were nationally Jewish sheep belonging to the nation. As, and the shepherd of Jehovah, as the nation, the shepherd of the nation, they were still Jewish sheep. But he called out his own and left hundreds of sheep still there. Did I miss that? I was afraid of somebody taking from Brother Birdie said, all the sheep came out. Yes, just yes, his, yes, own, his sheep. own sheep. Yeah, all his own sheep. That's right. The Jewish sheep still stayed where they were, and I, and I wouldn't want to give the impression that it's only believers in assembly fellowship that are genuinely saved. All believers should be called out and should have. That's why I mentioned earlier. Sometimes the Lord gives a little bit of a nudge, and still sheep might stay, and there might be separation refused. But that doesn't mean there's no salvation. 
and we're not encouraging people to stay mixed up in the systems as you have mentioned. Well, I'm just asking a question. Those that remained, are they Israel but not the true Israel? So that they're not genuine believers as we would say, the ones that remained in the fold. The ones that were genuine came out, followed Yes, yes. Those, those who had a relationship with the shepherd, they moved out with the shepherd, following the shepherd. They believed in Jehovah. The sheep that remained believed in Jehovah as the God of Israel. But the sheep that came out were the people who not only believed in the God of Israel as the one true God, they believed in Jesus, the Messiah. So that made the difference. And the sheep that remained still believed in God. They were still believers in that traditional Jewish sense. Our brother quoted the verse, Eternally that they make know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The sheep that wouldn't come out didn't recognize that that one true God in whom they believed had sent Jesus as the Messiah. So that's the whole, you made that quite clear. You want to move on? We do need to move on. I was going to say, Verse 16 has obviously implications in, what, in, in the light of what we've been hearing, and rightly so. And, but I should mention, and no doubt that our brother uh, would have been making the point anyway, that our authorised uh, in the last line speaks of one fold and one shepherd, and it's really one flock in the original. So what we are learning is that, yes, the Jewish thing is being talked about further up, but we come to Gentiles, I judge, uh, who are also going to be part of that one flock. So we have this, this new sphere now that, that is, is coming into question and this, this, this new structure, this new thing. And as, as you said, it is so very important to, to realize that this is not, it's not that they were called out of one fold and into another fold. A newer, shinier, better fold. Yeah. The fold is done away with here and it's sure. a flock that we have. Just, just to help on the the, the, the passage that Bertie has brought up, it doesn't mention a Gentile fold as such. We're looking at the Jewish fold in the background, but when it comes down to verse 16, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, it doesn't say it's going to bring them out of a Gentile fold as such. Thank you, that's very helpful. Can I pick up on something you mentioned, I think in your outline, that uh, here the fold had a perimeter and that was a boundary and it kept them all inside but uh, the, the centre of the flock is what's important, the shepherd himself and somebody has said that sheep nearest to each other are those nearest to the shepherd and the sheep nearest to the shepherd are those nearest to each other just the application for ourselves today in assembly fellowship gathered to the name Thank you very much, it, it's, it's a beautiful picture uh, we haven't the time to take it up and apply it but it's a beautiful picture to think of, as you say, the closeness both with the shepherd and with each other. And of course, the, the defining thing about the flock would be this, that wherever the shepherd was, that's where they would be, because, because it would always be the shepherd uh, who was at the centre. And we have here, we have, we have this, 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 this something, something quite new. We have those who are not of the fold. They didn't belong to the, to the fold of Judaism. They didn't belong to the nation. And as we've been reminded, it wasn't that they belonged to another fold. We're not told really where they came from. But now they're being brought together into this, so, into this one flock. So the, the word bringer lead, the same verb that we had earlier. When it's Jews, he brings them out. 
But when it's Gentiles, he just brings them. Just brings them. Yeah. Just brings them. So one fold and one shepherd, or you meant, or one flock and one shepherd. Flock and shepherd seem, by the spelling, to be miles apart in English. But they're very close, as you know very well. The, the Greek word for shepherd is P-O-I-M-E-N. And the Greek word for fold is P-O-I-M-N-E. So it's just a transposition of two letters. And the two are very, it's one, one sheep community and one shepherd. They're both very, one takes identity from the other. So he's, he begins the chapter, he's the shepherd of the sheep. In the middle section, he's the good shepherd. Now he's the one shepherd. What's the development of thought there? He's the door, verse 2, the shepherd of the sheep, and then I am the good shepherd, and now there shall be one shepherd. You had you something in mind there? No, no, you just, so as the shepherd of the sheep, that's the separation that he creates. He calls them out. As the good shepherd, that's the sacrifice that he makes. As the one shepherd, that's the new society that he creates. So there's a development and, and uh, all, all of that. Well, just on this new thing, I think verse 16 is a really critical verse for understanding our Bible in so many different ways. You mentioned the word new many times, and it fits with Ephesians 2.8, one new man. Um, It it squares with Matthew uh, chapter 16, I will build my church, something different. He didn't make out of the old old material of Israel, he created something distinctly new. And of course, there's a whole range of Christians out there who've never seen this. And so they study their Bible and they think that the church in Israel is always one thing. And they don't get the, the prophetic outline of Scripture. They don't get the dispensations. And it's a massive confusion out there. And people are going downloading on the internet. And strangers and uh, hirelings and thieves and robbers are confusing the saints on this very issue. But just to go back to Brother Betty point, another great thing though about this is when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he didn't die within the fold of Judaism. He went outside the city and he suffered without the gate. And you can almost hear someone saying, Lord, do we have to leave the city? And he said, you've got to leave the city. You've got to leave it all together. That sacred city, Jerusalem, you've got to leave it. And when you do leave it, you've got to build another sacred city. He says, come out therefore and without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. There's no centre of administration left. You're out alone to Christ. And I see it all here. I see the churches that were universal, but I see a picture of the local assembly. We're gathered out to him alone. And we gather to Christ alone. And it's absolutely new. Thank you. Now we're going, to need to, we're going to need to move on here. Our timelines are, are slipping badly. We've had the introduction of the Father uh, back in, in verse number 14. And in the section uh, from there onwards, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a continual reference, constant reference uh, to the Father. But when we come to verse 17, there's another uh, new note that's sounded, and it's the note of resurrection. And as I suggested already, this is really necessary if a shepherd who's going to lay down his life, not in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense, if a shepherd is going to lay down his life, is still going to be an effective shepherd. It's no good if, 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 if the bear had killed David. Uh, and David is, is lying there and he's dead. Well, he's no longer able to shepherd the sheep. But this shepherd is a shepherd who is, continues to be able to shepherd his sheep because we're going to discover now this, that he is going to lay down his life. But he is going to do it that he might take it again. And he says, this is the reason. Therefore doth my father love me. Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And I take it that, that the idea there is that, that this sums up in, in one tremendous action all that Christ was. His character. 
And that character was, was so lovely to the father. So the fact that, that he would lay down his life for the sheep, it just, it just summed up to the father all the loveliness of his son. So that it, the question would arise maybe, is this whole new movement that involves the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ a complete new thing that you have an emphasis would this meet the Father's approval? He says, meet my Father's approval. He says, my Father is more delighted in me than ever just because of what I'm doing. So strange to Jewish ears, but so much appreciated by the Father. We all have that assurance in our hearts when you think of Judaism, so God came down to dwell with men. When you come to this section now, that divine approval, God has received Christ up to his right hand, the wonder of resurrection. Thank you, Gary. That's good. And he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So this is, this is one of the references to, to the authority of the Saviour. Uh, in, in John's Gospel and of course we know that to those that receive him to them he gives authority uh, to be called uh, the, the sons of God uh, even to those that believe in his name but he says, he says this, this, this laying down of my life it's not as it would be perhaps for the shepherd that was uh, the, the, the literal shepherd that was caught by a beast and could do nothing to prevent it this is, this is voluntary this is, this is volitional I lay it down of myself has he taken his life again? The, 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 the taking it again is, is the same word um, that's used I think uh, I'm correct in saying as this commandment I have received of the Father so it's not perhaps such an, an, an active act as the translation might, might suggest but he's receiving it again from the Father declared to be the Son of the resurrection now if we have any comments on this verse and, and then we'll need to move really into the next Section. What's interesting is the impact it makes on the Jews, as we find in the verse 18, verse 19, a division among them on this very matter. Yes. They haven't argued with him as far as his relationship to the sheep up until now, but that changes. There's an infidel that says that God was somehow cruel and unjust in punishing his own son for our sins. But this takes away from that entirely because the act of Calvary was entirely voluntary on the part of the Lord Jesus. And so that's what changes Calvary from being some unjust transfer of punishment to being a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thank you. That's very helpful. So then as, our, as our, our brother Mr. Wilson has been pointing out to us, this, this, is, this is the crunch issue. This is the thing that, that really upsets them. And again, there's a division among the Jews for these sayings. And it's interesting, we don't really have time to, to think too much about these verses, but isn't it interesting that we have this interplay of word and work in these verses? So they say, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. But then they're talking about his works. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And of course, that's something that we beautifully see uh, in, the, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he began to do and what he began to teach, what he did and what he said, beautifully brought together. Brother. In the book of the Acts, it's God who raised the dead. The emphasis of God. In 1 Peter 3 and in uh, uh, Romans 8, it's the Spirit that raises Christ. But here, it's the Son who raises himself in his own power. So, just uh, in this little section that you've just summarized there, Brother Mark, it's, um, 
and it refers back to the opening of the eyes of the blind. That was the big question in chapter nine. Who is this? Who is this man? Where is he? What do he do? What do he do? Who is he? Who is he? That opened your eyes. Can you put him into a category? Who is he? Well, the Lord has answered that here. I am. I am. I am. I am. This is who he is. So that you're left with a choice. And it's like Lewis's trilemma. He's divine. Oh, couldn't have that. He's a deceiver. Well, let's say that. Well, then he's devilish. So that's where they finish up here. It's just, it has to be divine or devilish. Some of the two. And they come, they come face to face with that conundrum, but they, 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 say, they, they, just, they, won't, they won't resolve it, and in their unbelief they can't resolve it, and, and they just leave it hanging there. Exactly. And so we come then to the, to the porch. And it was in Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. This is, uh, you'll, you'll know this, this is a lovely thing that John does, that he uses what we English teachers call the pathetic fallacy, except of course it's not a fallacy when John does it. He will use physical conditions to, to echo, to mirror spiritual conditions. Judas went out and it was night. And we, the, 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 we think of the, the, the eloquence of that. And here it was winter. And it certainly as far as the nation was concerned, it was, it was a cold season. And this is a, this is a scene of opposition. They gathered round him. And to me, it's very difficult to read these verses and not to have your mind go back to Psalm 22 because, because the, the dogs are beginning to snarl here and, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the horns of the unicorns are glistening and we're moving on really here uh, towards Calvary uh, and they gather round him. So this was the, this was the Feast of, of Dedication, the, uh, the Feast of Hanukkah. And uh, that may well lie in the background to what they say later on, Thou being a man, makest thyself God. That was what uh, had, 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 had um, happened uh, under uh, Antiochus. Uh, it may well uh, be what's uh, in, the, in the mind of the Saviour when he speaks about he who the Father hath consecrated. But here they come to him and they say, how long dost thou make us to doubt? And, and literally that is, how long do you take away our life? There's a, a great irony in that. Uh, and most, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression that has caused the translators some difficulty. Most go for something like, how long do you keep us in suspense? But you see, when it came to Hanukkah, when it came to the Feast of, of Dedication, they, they celebrated that as really a national resurrection, as a moment of reviving. And they, that seems to be the background. And they say, we're, we're celebrating this occasion when, when life was restored to the nation, when, when the nation was revived, when, when there was this nas- national resurrection. And could you not just let us get on with that? Why do you have to be this, this irritant? Why do you have to be here taking away our life? And they say, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And the Saviour says, I told you. And ye believe not. And I suppose one of the questions that we want to ask in relation to that was, when had he told them? Uh, and, uh, and then again we have the reference to the works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they, are, they bear witness of me. The devil question uh, was always coming up at this time, even in the other Gospels. The eligible, it's really the unpardonable sin, in a sense. But it raises its head here too. Well, such power had to have a supernatural explanation. If you weren't willing to say it was the power of God, your mm. options were very, very limited. Mm. Mark, in addition to what you said about the Feast of Dedication, the background, could there be the thought that it is significant? He spoke these words there. There was that uh, desecration of the temple and this was to do with a restoration of Judaism, a building up of this fold, if you like it, and he's choosing that place to say that really he's bringing 
that the other way again he's bringing something new that's going to make Judaism obsolete. Thank you. So, so the, you, know, you have said a good wee bit there, and Brother David, about the, the, the season uh, dedication. And you mentioned Antiochus Epiphany, a title that was given to him and that he assumed really meant Antiochus God manifest. But here was truly God manifest. Antiochus Epiphany was an imposter, and they, he was blasphemed with this. But the, the, the site, Solomon's porch, the east colonnade of the temple, it was festooned with trophies and with shields and with swords. And it was there to give the people, visitors to the temple, assurance that this place is absolutely secure. So with all the symbols of security on display on the walls of Solomon's colonnade, the Lord Jesus spoke about real security. Not political security, eternal security. And they, 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 were, they, were, asked, they were answered more than they ever asked. They said, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, and he will, he will answer, but he'll go far beyond what they had in their mind until we come down to this point. He says, I and the Father are one. And of course, that, that, that revelation triggers a, a fresh uh, rise up of opposition from the Jews. And you mentioned, I told you, I took that to be the two months earlier. Yes. And maybe more. Yeah. You another no, I mean, I, I think that... The whole gospel. We could, the, whole, the whole gospel, really. And, and not just the words, but even the deeds that he had performed. And I take it that even what we have earlier on in the chapter with... Ezekiel chapter 34 in the back of their minds that there should have been no ambiguity to this about a man who said I am the good shepherd that was a, that was a claim to, to messiahship that they shouldn't have been able to miss and, and I suspect they didn't really no. Mark, Mark the expression Jesus walked <clears throat> as we know that the walk of Christ is a great theme in the gospel this is the gospel that starts that they were watch, looking upon Jesus as he walked and um, it's, it's, it's interesting that we only come now in verse 23 to actually getting the detail of where the Saviour was when he's told this whole story of the shepherd and the sheep. And here he is walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. And we know that the rabbis would do that. They would walk backwards and forwards teaching. And here is his last, final testimony to himself before his passion. Here's a rabbi like no other. And he's standing teaching. And it's interesting that they already have observed, verse 19, these sayings, the words. Verse number 21, the words, slightly different words. But the specific utterances of Christ and the general content, they're listening. And they're hearing a, a man minister like they've never heard before. And we're allowed to get a, a sense of it as he walks up and down, authoritatively speaking the mind of God to these people. How, how tragic that they missed him. <clears throat> and of course, at the end of the chapter, and, and well beyond the bounds of our section, he, he, will, he will point again to the significance of those words. And he says... If you don't believe me, believe the words, the works. Mm -hmm. and, and just really as that man in chapter 9 had done, uh, he believed the works and he came to know the one who had done the works. Um, but here he's, these, these were people who were, who, were, who were locked in opposition, they were locked in disbelief. And he says in verse 26, Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. And they had no response to the, to the voice of the master. They had no response to the voice of the shepherd. And they were, uh, they were revealing their true character in that. People can reach a point where more evidence is no advantage to them. It wasn't lack of, they didn't believe because of lack of evidence. It wasn't an intellectual problem, it was a deep spiritual problem. If, if you speak, this is, this is very tangential, but if you speak to, to, to many people about the creation, 
People who don't want to believe that God created the universe. They will tell you that there are millions and millions and millions of different universes. And we can't see them. We can't prove that they exist. And the only reason that they are there is to prevent them having to say that God created the universe. (laughs) And it's absolutely ridiculous. And I tell you, if we came out with anything as as unsubstantiated as that, we we would be laughed immediately to scorn. But you see, the thing is this, when you, when you refuse to recognize the truth, you'll go to all sorts of extremes, really silly extremes. And, it's, no, and, and we smile, but it's very tragic to think that people have, have so closed their minds to God and his word that they'll respond like that. But, but that's exactly the sort of thing that was happening here. They believe not because they're not of my sheep, so... There was no possibility maybe they could believe because they weren't his sheep in the first place? Is that what that's teaching? No, and I've, I've uh, uh, drawn our attention um, towards the end of the chapter where he says to the same people, well, you know, you believe. Believe the works. Um, so that there was, there was a testimony to them, there was a testimony that they, they could have believed, but they, they refused to do so. And demonstrated that they, that they were not of his sheep in that refusal. Mark, that is an important point I think that we have to see. I'm perfectly happy with taking verse 3 as John the Baptist and the people there who were believers already. And then when we get down uh, to verse 16, he's looking forward to Gentiles coming in. But there is an interim period between these two. There were people who were not his sheep, who were Jewish sheep in the Jewish fold. But they had the opportunity to respond and to become his sheep and that was going on I take it the blind man in chapter 9 he became one of the Lord's sheep he came out and so there's no suggestion that they cannot become his sheep the invitation before you finish the chapter is that they would also become one of his sheep and come out too exactly the man in chapter 9 at the start of the chapter was not one of the sheep but by the time we get to the end of the chapter he is one of the sheep what's interesting in these verses that we're looking at is that the Lord Jesus stands alone I don't mean that he's not accompanied, but you notice he he speaks of I, 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 my, 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 my father, and so on. And he he makes it clear that he is the gathering centre. They're not going to have it. And clearly they're not going to have it. And yet they don't recognise that the one that he represents is the father. And he makes that remarkable statement, I and my father are one. And it pushes the nation at a great distance from the God that they profess to, to believe in. I was just as you're going into that section that Brother Thomas mentioned, where I was just going to say, it doesn't say you believe not because you are not my sheep. It says you believe not because you are not of my sheep. That's a, an expression in John. Ye are of your father the devil. That is, you bear the marks. He was a liar and a murderer. You're the same marks. Ye believe not because ye do not have the marks of my sheep. Okay, you say, what are the marks of his sheep? He tells us here now in these verses. Thank you. Yes, that's, that's very helpful. And that moves us into these, these verses that we've just got about a, a minute each, and which, which is, is far less than, than they deserve. My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. It's a tremendous statement of of the security of the sheep. And it's underwritten by verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all. How how is it that we know the sheep are secure? It's because my father is is greater than all. And I take it that the thought here is not so much that my father is stronger than all, 
and therefore able to resist any attack, although he is, and that is true. But it's the greatness of his person that is brought before us. He is, he is greater than all. And because of that, it is true that no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You know, one of the very few advantages, I speak as a foreigner, of the fact that, that you people are having a general election is that they keep talking about the triple lock, which I don't really know what it's about. But every time they talk about the triple lock, I think of this double lock. And he says, my sheep, no one's ever going to pluck them out of my hand. And no one's ever going to pluck them out of my father's hand. And that's a, that's a tremendous statement of, of reassurance and of security for every child of God. Brethren and sisters, we will never, ever perish. We're safe in the hand of the shepherd, and we're safe in the hand of the father. Underline, Mark. Um, comparing with verse 12 where it says that the wolf catcheth them same word here is pluck, take away by force what the, the wolf can do with others can, he can never ever do to us not, not the Roman but Satan can never take it away from us thank you so, so they, can't, they can't perish uh, by any failure either failure on their part and certainly no failure on his part neither can they be lost not only by failure, but they can't be lost by force. No power. So it was a, a good man from the same foreign country as yourself. He said, neither force nor gain can sever those he loves from him. So, <laughs> said a few things worth repeating. <laughs> Just ask you one question. In relation to verse 30, I and my father are one. What is that one there? Is it in personage? Or is it in the context of care and love for the sheep? Thank you. That's, that, that was a, a point that we do need to, to touch on before we close. Uh, it's often been pointed out that the, 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 the one here is neuter. It's not saying that they are, they are one person. We know that there is that distinction of, of, of persons the, between the, 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 the persons of, of the Godhead, the persons of the Trinity. And I had taken it that, that really the, the idea here is, is one in, in purpose so that the, 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 the purpose of the shepherd is that the sheep be preserved well that's just exactly what the purpose of the father is as well there's, there's, no, there's no conflict of agendas they have exactly the same thing in mind and that is the, the preservation of the sheep from, from all danger anyone else have happy with that? Jehovah Witnesses somebody last or some of the younger believers will come and say, but sure, there's another verse in this gospel that says, my father is greater than I. So he was inferior to the father. How do we, put, how do we sit alongside, I and my father are one, equality and unity of purpose and so on, and my father is greater than I. So we're not equal. J.W. would say. Yes. Not, <laughs> <I didn't> say <laughs> so just before we close... Well, you, you, have to, uh, you have to look at the context, really, in, in, in which um, those, those scriptures are found and to understand uh, the different truth that is being communicated in so, each of those. So in the upper room, the Lord Jesus is thinking about himself here on earth, but his Father's in heaven. So in position, I am here in humiliation. My Father in heaven is greater than I. That's position, but here it's person and purpose. Yes. So one is yes. using different well, brethren, thank you very much for your help. You dealt very gently and kindly with me, and that is greatly appreciated. And we'll now bring the meeting to close with a word of prayer. Shall we pray?
Our Father, we bow in thy presence in the precious and worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank thee for thy word which we've been considering. We thank thee for the truth of this passage. We've, we've hardly begun to get our arms around it and to understand the significance of, of the words that we've been reading. We praise thee again for the good shepherd, the one who gave his life for the sheep. We thank thee for his care for us. We thank thee for his knowledge of us. And we thank thee for the relationship that we've been brought into with him. We thank thee for our security. And we praise thee, our Father, that we can repose secure in the hand of the Good Shepherd and in the hand of the Father. And we're glad that there's nothing that can separate us. And we're glad that there's nothing that can cause us to perish. We do give thee thanks, our Father, for thy truth that we've considered We pray that for thy people there will have been those handfuls that they would have gleaned and that we'll each go away and that we'll thrash out and enjoy and be nourished by the truth that we've considered and that it might be of value and of profit to us. We look to thee for thy continued blessing in the Bible reading this afternoon and in the ministry this evening that thou will draw near and that thy voice again will be heard, that help will be given to thy servants and that we'll have a profitable time around thy word. We thank thee now for the privilege again of gathering together like this and for the kindness of thy people in providing for our needs. And we thank thee for good food provided. And we ask that thou will bless it to us and bless our time together and our conversation one with another we ask as we commit ourselves into thy care and return our thanksgiving and our worship and our praise again in the precious and worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
There's a king. Yeah.